Okay, so now, if you excuse me, I go into uh, English. I really admire this book. I was not bluffing, you know, because what is so paradoxical about it is that uh, I really mean it. How, in the first approach, is the most horrible book you can imagine. But then it, it you just... Uh, you know, like, you remember those puzzles or pictures where something appears wrong? No, it's a chaos. But then you just, re, uh, just change the position of one element and it's, and it's perfect harmony. Or my favorite example, uh, I think this is the obsession of Gerhard Richter's so-called photo paintings. How you have this total abstraction and then all of a sudden you have a realistic photo. So let me change. For example, just to give you an example, this sounds horrible. This idea of uh, Weininger that woman, she, she says it literally, woman doesn't exist. Woman is just an imagination of man. Ontologically, woman is the result of man's failure into sin. Woman is simply male sin embodied. But then it's very interesting how she gives almost a feminist twist to it, because his point is then, don't blame the woman. It's, uh, uh, the, uh, man has to purify his desire, the origin of it is man. That's the, and then he has a wonderful, I claim, radically feminist analysis of male love for women, where he says that basically the male love for the woman is mortifying, it's killing, that man is totally indifferent towards woman as such, it's woman is for men only a screen for projecting male fantasies and so on and so on. So again, I think that such, such approach where you discover insights in the middle of, as it were, enemy's land is much more productive, I think, than the standard politically correct uh, feminist, uh, feminist wisdoms. Okay, <clears throat> now let me go to my topic. The title is The Spectator's Malevolent Neutrality. Of course, anyone who knows Freud knows what I'm aiming at. It's an ironic reversal of Freud's uh, position of the analyst, psychoanalyticer. The idea is that psychoanalysts should listen to the patient with benevolent neutrality. Which is this malevolent neutrality? My idea would be that this is basically the position of the spectator. And since I don't know a lot about theater, this is all I can do here. Describe a certain position which I think, from my modest knowledge, is crucial to understand properly what goes on at the very elementary level of the disposition of the public, actors, and so on in the theater. Okay, since I have some tendency towards politics, I would, of course, like to begin with the properly theatrical experience of staging, which we all witnessed in the last weeks. The, the series of photos showing Iraqi prisoners tortured and humiliated. Of course, I condemn them and so on and so on, but something nonetheless interests me here. It makes these photos much more interesting than just an object of, to justify the hatred towards the United States. It's that I think we should focus on the difference between these photos, sorry, this torturing, how it was literally staged, and the standard 
torture, let us say, before, under Saddam Hussein. The standard political torture is usually hidden. The whole point is that you don't see who, it, who is doing it. If you see the torturers, if they take photos at all, it's usually that their faces are, are covered. But here, the first surprise is that not only that the, the torturers were recording humiliations with the camera, but that they included themselves into the picture. You know, for me, the big shock was those stupid, ordinary American faces uh, of innocent girls, boys, and so on, uh, above the prisoners. Then I went a step further in my analysis and asked myself a stupid question. Didn't I already saw it somewhere? And of course, if you spend some time in the United States, you know that at least every two, three months, there is usually a scandal which explodes, where you can see similar pictures in all the media. It's what? I think that this is one of the central parts of American cultural identity, this dirty, half-private, initiatic rituals, to be included, admitted into some inner circle. And they can be very brutal. Okay, we have them all around. But... I think there is something specific about how Americans are doing it. And to avoid a misunderstanding, I'm not here uh, putting the blame on America as the most, most pervert nations or what. No, it's more complex because I claim that every social identity relies on, on some kind of, a, how should I call it, dirty, obscene background. For example, you remember all the scandals in the last years about Catholic priests seducing uh, young boys. I think this is not simply, we cannot play the same game as President Bush tried about United States Army and say, this doesn't stand, these are simply perverse, this has nothing to do with Catholic Church. No, I think this is the proper obscene underside of Catholic ideology, because what is so interesting, and I'm relying here on analysis of some progressive Catholics themselves, like my good friend from Chicago, Gary Willis, who wrote incidentally a very good analysis of, of uh, uh, John Wayne as an ideological figure and so on. He, he analyzed closely this Catholic priest abuses of children and discovered that how, it's not simply that priests abuse their position of a Priest, but that they used references to religion actively as a means of seduction. The standard procedure of a Catholic priest was to start in this, you know, confessionary, superego, hard position to question the small kids, are you masturbating, what are you doing, and so on. And when the kid confessed, the next step was, okay, my God, this is horrible, show me how, like this, like that, was it like that? No, I will show you how it was. And then slowly to involve him. So, you know, it wasn't simply some kind of bataille logic of transgression. I'm really an atheist, let's do something horrible. No, it was perversion aroused of, on, of some kind of a over-severe over-identification with religious content. And I think, again, that it's the same case here. For example, when I was in some campus, I think it was, but I'm not sure, it was some small campus in Oregon recently. They told me of a big scandal some, a couple of years ago where uh, the initiatic ritual was the one to become members of so-called fraternities, you know, this closed circle usually of rich students. And the ritual there was 
that in order to be accepted into the inner circle, you have to perform a show, you have basically to anally penetrate yourself by a Coke bottle in front of others. The problem was that the bottle broke and there was blood and so on and so on. But just to give you an idea how radically self-humiliating these rituals are, or every half a year usually there is a scandal about American Marines. They discover that, you know, to become member of Marines, you, you have to undergo this kind of initiatic ceremony. Usually the point there is that you have to perform some, again, some humiliating acts like allow your peers to urinate on you or allow your breast to be pierced by needles and so on, all that stuff. So what I claim is that this staging is crucial. This is what makes this case specific. And here, if you want, Reagan was, sorry, Bush was wrong. Not only it's not true that these photos from Iraq are not for what the United States stands. No, in, in them we got inside. This is American culture as such. It's obscene underside. This is the true introduction of the poor Iraqis to American culture, if you want. So when I hear the thesis of uh, clash of civilizations, I would say, yes, this is a nice clash of civilization. Civilization, not if you analyze big sublime religions, but if you compare these photos with the way torture was done under Saddam, this anonymous mass torture where the emphasis was not so much on humiliation but on, uh, but on uh, just inflicting brutal pain and so on and so on. Again, the logic is totally different. And it's more than ever important, I think, to bear in mind these differences. <coughs> Okay, this point is clear. But now, the topic of my talk will be for which gays were this since stage? Because you remember, for example, the best-known photo, perhaps, although not the most horrible, uh, was the one, you remember, that prisoner in a kind of a almost monk or rather Ku Klux Klan uh, 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 coat with, with, a, with, a, with a head covered, uh, holding in his hand. I mean, this is pure theater staging, my God. I thought... My, I made an experiment with a fr some friends of mine before they saw these pictures in, in, the, in the newspapers. They didn't know about them. I showed them that picture and asked them, what is this? They told me, did you arrive recently from New York? Is this some lower Manhattan avant-garde theater or what? Or some Mapplethorpe photos or whatever? I mean, this is American culture at its purest. But what interests me again is the following. For which gays are such obscene obscene scenes, uh, situations, positions, states. Okay, the answer seems easy. One, it's for their friends. The whole problem is that they were circulating, setting around these pictures and so on, which is why, incidentally, kind of a leftist ironic remark, it's typical that the main defensive measure of American army against the future occurrence of such abuses was, my God, I laughed when I read this, this is not a joke, unfortunately, was that they prohibited now the soldiers having this video camera, small video cameras and photos, as if you know. If we don't know about it, it's, it's okay, no? Incidentally, it's the same horror, feeling of horror as I felt when I learned, I was in the States, I remember, the very first reaction of Pentagon, you know what it was. These events occurred because soldiers were not properly taught Geneva Convention rules. Now, as if you know, you should be taught 
through Geneva Convention that you shouldn't torture people, so on and so on. Okay, but I don't think this is the answer, that it was simply uh, for their friends and so on. I think that uh, the gaze which you imagine when you state such sins, the gaze for which such shots are made, is phantasmatic, non-existing, impossible. And now we are in the very heart of ideological tradition. I think that practically every ideology relies on such an impossible gaze. From, let's go to so-called primitive times, you remember from art history, the mystery of great Roman viaducts, that you have even on the top statues, small statues and so on, which are so placed that nobody, no real person can ever see them. So for which gaze are they there? Now you will say for the divine gaze. Yes, but they, so for none of them, it's for a gaze which they will never experience, or it's the same as you probably know with those old, I don't know where from, it's my limit of my knowledge, is it Aztec or Inca drawings, you know, which only now that we have planes we can see the figure. So again, they were making it for an imagined impossible gaze. And I think that this reference to some impossible gaze, which of course in Freudian terms is the überich, superego gaze, at its purest, is central. The manipulation with such a gaze. The nice, uh, yes, from so-called primitive societies, up to, so that you will not think that I think we are any better today, up to today's politics. For, I, let's take the example of, of Stalinism, this obsession in Stalinist communism with rituals, with parades, and so on and so on. <clears throat> this extreme sensitivity, I will talk more about it later, of Stalinism for appearances, how appearances should not be disturbed, how the illusion, the appearance should be maintained. Uh, from my youth, I remember a wonderful, or not even youth, this was in the mid-80s, I remember a disgustingly wonderful example of such a manipulation with an impossible gaze from Slovenia, my own country, an anti-abortion merchant fairy tale written in the 80s by a Slovene right-wing nationalist Catholic poet. He wrote a fairy tale for children which takes place on an idyllic South Sea island where aborted children live together without their parents. The idea is that if you are aborted, you are just born into an alternate reality. Although their life there is nice and calm, they miss parental love, so they spend their time in sad reflections on how it is that their parents preferred a career or a luxurious holiday to themselves. They preferred all this to them. The trick, of course, resides in the fact that the aborted children are presented as having been born only into an alternate universe, retaining the memory of parents who betrayed them. This way, they can direct at their parents a reproachful gaze which makes them guilty. Uh, so again, this is the ideological trick to make you feel guilty, as if you are observed by this impossible gaze. Again, which then is this gaze? Here I would like to make a brief reference to Lacanian theory. Lacan defined, redefined the Freudian trib 
the strip drive as according to Lacan what Freud, Freud calls the strip is reflexive it is an attitude of in French it goes se faire something like for Lacan uh, visual drive show trip is not I want to see I want to see his desire to see but drive the strip is visual drive means not I want to see but it's the drive to make myself seen I claim that Lacan thereby points towards a kind of elementary theatricality of the human condition our fundamental striving is not to observe but to be part of a state state scene to expose oneself to a gaze not a determinate gaze of a person in reality but some non-existing pure gaze like precisely the gaze which can see the Roman viaducts or the gaze for which the Stalinists organized their gigantic public spectacles to specify this gaze as divine is already I think to, to miss the point to deprive it of its uh, what Michel Fion, a French cinema theorist, called acousmatic nature. That is to say, it's a gaze which freely floats in the air, which cannot be attributed to any determinate bearer. The two correlative positions, that of an actor on stage and that of a spectator, are not ontologically equivalent or contemporary. I claim that we are originally not observers of the play stage of reality but part of the tableau staged for this non-existing gaze and it is only in a secondary moment that we can assume the position of those who look at the stage so again I think that our primordial position is I am doing it for the gaze which is why for Lacan the psychoanalytic notion of fantasy is not so much the scene itself which you fantasize the fantasy at, at its most radical is the imagined the fantasized gaze which observes you the most elementary phantasmatic scene is not that of a fascinating scene to be looked at some pornographic scene whatever you want but the notion that there is someone out there looking at us it is not a dream but the notion that we are the objects in someone else's dream does not the recent trend of so-called can websites point in this direction namely these websites which realize the logic of the Truman Show the film in these sites we are able to follow continuously some event or place the life of a person in his or her apartment the view on a street and so on and so on for example for some time I was trying to locate them on the web and you find incredible hundreds of incredible examples of persons who simply put video cameras in their apartment and you can watch them day and night what they are doing and it's not commercial it's not you have to pay and so on the mysterious thing is this need for the phantasmatic gaze to be there as the guarantee of my being it's as if I exist only insofar as I'm looked at all the time I think that similar to this is the phenomenon noted by Claude Lefort of the TV set which is all the time turned on, even if we do not watch the TV. 
The idea is that but the TV should watch us, in a way, all the time. This is very interesting, I, I mean, I think because here we have a kind of a tragicomic reversal of the standard notion, Orwellian notion, referring to George Orwell, or Bentham notion of panopticon society, you know, this care of we are observed all the time, the ultimate horror. No, I think that more, we are afraid of being observed all the time, but we are even more afraid of not being observed at all. That's the ultimate horror. And this explains the failure of a film which I find in its very totally boring, low commercial trash, totally boring nature, an interesting film. I don't know if you saw it, because it was a commercial failure, you probably did not see it. From two, sorry, 2003, the real Ca Cancun, referring to Mexico tourist resort. It was the first ever, not only reality TV show, but reality movie. They simply hired the producers, 16 uh, uh, students, they put them together for eight, eight days in some tourist resort in Cancun for the spring break uh, student vacation. And as the movie advertisement says, no scripts, no actors, no rules. Anything can happen on spring break, and it did. <laughs> but of course the shock is that the movie is a total failure because far from giving us the insight into real life. The point is that precisely nothing interesting happens, that it's totally, predict it's totally predictable. Why? Let's look into the ideological background of this film. Already from the 1950s, social psychology develops endlessly the motive of how in public life we are all wearing masks, adopting identities which conceal our true selves. However, Wearing a mask can be, or playing a role, can be a strange thing. Sometimes, more often than we tend to believe, there is more truth in the mask than in what we assume to be our real self behind the mask. So when we act a role, my spontaneous idea is when somebody tells me, oh, I was just joking, I was just acting, that this is probably closer to the truth than so-called real self. Why? Let me make a simple mental experiment. Uh, let us presuppose that you are, or rather, since it's an aggressive imag uh, uh, imagined scene, that I am an, an impotent, shy person who plays cyberspace interactive games. In real life, I'm shy, I'm weak, I'm a coward, I'm a failure with women, whatever you want, it's a cliche idea of a failure. But let's say that in the cyberspace, I adopt... Uh, screen persona of somebody who is aggressive, gets all the women, is an aggressive, sadistic, murderer, irresistible, seducer, and so on and so on. Now, of course, your first reaction would have been, of course, this uh, uh, cyberspace or uh, screen persona is just a kind of imaginary supplement, a temporary escape from the misery, impotence of my real life. But is this all? What if there is also the opposite logic at work here? What if deep in myself, at the very core of my personality, I am a brutal sadist and so on? And what if it is exactly because I know that when I play cyberspace game, precisely because I know that this is just a game, that I can there articulate the true core of my personality, which I am not able to do, which I am afraid to articulate in real interaction with other people. In other words, what is, 
my real person, real in the simple sense of the way I act in ordinary life, interacting with other people, what if there I have a mask? And what if precisely when I say to myself, but this is just a game, there I, as it were, bring out my, whatever this means, true self. This is, I think, what Jacques Lacan meant when he said that the truth has the structure of a fiction. Sometimes the only way to articulate some traumatic truth is to tell to yourself, oh, it's just a fiction, so because it's not for the real, I can bring it out all. Now, the negative of this wearing a mask, its as it were, counterpoint, is a strange prohibition, and this tells us a lot about theatricality, I think. Uh, the strange prohibition which at least still recently ruled hardcore pornography. Did you notice, if you, okay, I will not question you on this because if you noticed it, you have implicitly to admit that you watched them, no? Did you notice a very strange things, at least about standard hardcore pornography films? How, on the one hand, it's you see everything. I mean, sexually. But on the other hand, you cannot be so stupid not to notice the extreme stupidity of the narrative which usually introduced the story. You know, they cannot just fornicate. There must be some three, four minutes introduction. And I claim that there is something compulsive about it. Nobody can be so stupid not to, not to be able to do a better story. I mean, they are so embarrassingly stupid, comical. Does you remember, like, for example, I don't know, housewife alone at home and the plumberer comes and fetches up the hole which was leaking. And then she tells him, oh, I have another hole to fill in. Can you also help me? You know, it's so embarrassing. But I think that this is a kind of a negative form of censorship. I think this is what makes pornography uh, a conservative genre. It is as if you can see it all, they are really fornicating there, but the price to be paid is that the story must be ridiculous. It must be too stupid to identify. The true transgression would have been to have pornography, but at the same time a really engaging story, where you emotionally fully identify. That is, that's the impossible conjunction. And it's interesting how there were, four or five years ago, a couple of attempts first steps in this direction. Do you remember, for example, Lars von Trier's idiots, where you see in that orgy scene that they are really doing it. You have that second of real fellatio in Patricia Ross, intimacy, and so on and so on, but still, somehow, somehow still it doesn't, it doesn't work. But nonetheless, this tendency to do it, to, to do the impossible, which for me would be what? The impossible for me, as I wrote in one of my first books 20 years ago, would have been this. Imagine, not just hardcore pornography, but imagine a standard Hollywood film, the most classical one, let's say the biggest, I will mention it later, Casablanca. But imagine it then that it's exactly the same film as it is. But then, you know that scene when... Humphrey Bogart and uh, Ingrid Bergman meet and they embrace and then of course you have the fade out. Imagine the movie going on and the so that the movie would have been exactly the way it is. Ten minutes of hardcore sex there. <laughs> Incidentally, this is not just my imagination. A guy, I forgot his name, wrote, wrote a strange short story. It's called uh, As the Time Goes By or what, where he does exactly this. He, 
she takes this scene, it's a 20 pages short story, which begins with this scene from Casablanca, you know, Ingrid Bergman comes to uh, Humphrey Bogart in the night to get the, the visas, and then they embrace. In the movie you jump directly then through some mysterious fade out at what happens later. So it's not clear what happens. But here the story goes on, they start to make love, and then you have 15 pages of absolute hardcore, Ingrid Bergman licking him, double penetration, whatever you want. And what's even more obscene is that many phrases that we remember from Casablanca as famous standard Humphrey Bogart phrases, like you remember when he says, here's one to you, kid, are given very strange twist in this story. Like, Humphrey puts his penis in her mouth and says, here's one to you, kid, and so on. So it even spoils the... But what I want to say is that uh, 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 this precisely is unimaginable. But today, people try to imagine it. Why? What? Is it true that we no longer have this censorship? since we can combine the two levels. I claim not. I claim that at a different level we are paying the price. What price? Uh, today's hedonism combines pleasure with constraint, but I claim in a different way than the old notion of the right measure. The old Aristotelian logic is the logic of... Uh, Right measure. No, Aristotelian ethics is, is, you know, ethics of moderation. Eat, not too much. Sex, not too much, whatever. No, the proper measure. But today it's not that. Today it's a much stranger logic. It's, it's that uh, you can have as much as you want of that excessive pleasure because pleasure itself is already, as it were, deprived of its substance. Today it's no longer don't have too much coffee. It's have as much coffee as you want because it's already decaf coffee. It's not don't drink too much. It's have all the beer you want because it's already uh, beer without alcohol. And it, this goes on at all levels, not only at the level of products. Like, for example, you can have, I don't know, all the... I don't know, all the sweet you want because it's already diet, sugar, saccharin, whatever, and so on. Uh, it's even, I claim, in politics. For example, what is this Colin Powell doctrine of war? It is. We can have all the war because, you know what's Colin Powell doctrine, at least on our side, no, no death. So I claim that what Americans are sustaining now is a kind of a decaf, decaffeinated war. Okay, we can go on, that we have even decaffeinated politics and so on. No? But what's so interesting is how Opposites coincide here. The perfect example that I remember from my own embarrassing private experience is what? Uh, two, three years ago in California, uh, I had a strange... Well, well, the point is I needed a laxative. And I bought one, and they offered in the store a chocolate laxative. I found this idea ingenious, because usually the association is chocolate does the opposite, no? But the publicity for this one, oh, do you have constipation? Not a problem, eat more of this chocolate. I think that's the fundamental idea that, and for example, is it not that, now if I can make a fast jump to a different level, is not some, somebody like George Soros, a kind of a chocolate laxative capitalist, in the morning he is chocolate, doing financial speculations and so on. In the afternoon he is the laxative, you know, giving money back and so on. So it's as if first, it's as if the same guy, which is why uh, the same guy, how should I put it, you should 
Do as much as you want, dirty financial speculation, only if you, through charity, through whatever, if you somehow buy your way out of it. Which is why I think the notion of charity is crucial for today's capitalism. No wonder that all the symbols of today's capitalism, like starting with Bill Gates, you know, first you amass 40 billion dollars, then you give back 20 billion and you are celebrated as the greatest humanitarian of all times and so on and so on. I, and I even think that no wonder that marijuana is so popular today, because marijuana is precisely a kind of a decaffeinated opium along the same lines, no? The problem is how to have the thing not in moderation, but all you want because you don't pay the price for it. And I think that it is against this background that we should confront what is false in so-called reality TV shows. The real life we get in them is as real as decaf coffee. In short, even if these shows, reality TV, are for the real, people still act in them. They simply play themselves. And I think, I don't have time to develop it now, uh, this is what I find so great about, and I think this was his greatest period, before he fell for this new age mysticism, in his early documentaries, Krzysztof Kislowski, where he was well aware of how in documentaries you don't get simply real life. You get people, as it were, playing themselves. So the standard disclaimer in a novel, you know the standard disclaimer, characters in this text are a fiction, every resemblance with real life characters is purely contingent, holds also for the participants of the so-called reality soaps. What we see are fictional characters, even if they play themselves for the real. The best comment on reality TV is the ironic version of this disclaimer recently used by a Slovene writer. He put in a novel the following disclaimer. All characters in the following narrative are fictional, not real. But so are most the characters of the most of the people I know in real life. So this doesn't amount to much. So back to real Cancun. No scripts, no actors, no rules. Turned out to mean that people played themselves that they followed the most flat, stupid rules of social interaction and that nothing, even minimally unpredictable, happened. However, now let's complicate this analysis a little bit. On a closer look, the gaze for which we play ourselves turns out to be more complex. Let me remember, I'm really mad at myself that I didn't bring the clip with me, it looks much better. Let me, let me return to the scene from Casablanca, that very short scene, you remember, again, in the night, uh, Humphrey, uh, Ingrid Berman comes to Humphrey Bogart to get the visas for her and her husband. Then, after some talk, they embrace, kiss, fade out. Then you get three and a half seconds, that famous shot of Casablanca Airport uh, uh, light tower, light uh, circling around. Then you have a return to the two of them. And the same conversation seems to go on. Humphrey Bogart, smoking a cigarette, simply says, okay, and what went on? I think if somebody asks me where is ideology in Hollywood, you find it here at its most elementary, at its best. Why? Because, of course, what is the enigma of this three and a half seconds shot? You know, they embrace, fade out, three and a half seconds of... Uh, 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 of airport tower and then back to them. Of course, the big enigma is the following one. Did they do it or not? That is to say, is this just uh, the standard Hollywood stand-in for half an hour, I don't know how much, when they made love? Or is it just 
that real time break so that nothing happened, the conversation just went on. And here you should analyze, I'm following here the English uh, cognitivist who is very much against psychoanalysis, especially against Lacan, Richard Maltby, he is called, but I think he's a very good theoretician. And in, with all honesty, he did a wonderful analysis of this scene. And what he emphasized, Richard Maltby, is it's not so much that, that this scene is ambiguous as to this point. It's rather consciously self-contradictory. If you analyze closely this scene, you can see that it consciously gives signal signs which point to one and to the other direction. First, you have a whole series of codified sounds, sorry, signs, that they did do it. First, as you know, in classical Hollywood with uh, Hayes code production rules, uh, when the couple embraces and you have a fade out, it means they did it. Further proof, when after this fade out you see the couple smoking a cigarette, this is always the sign they did it. This is, no, uh, classical Hollywood was very codified at this level. Everything was possible to say, even if everything was prohibited. Like, prostitution was not allowed to be mentioned. You know what was the code? When somebody says this woman is from New Orleans, it meant prostitute. Or, for example, homosexuality was not allowed to be mentioned even as a topic. But the sign was when somebody remarks about another man, doesn't he wear a perfume? Didn't he put perfume on? It meant gay and so on. So along the same lines, when after seeing, embracing, especially if a man is, when somebody of the partners is smoking a cigarette, it means they did it. So there is a whole series of signs. On the top of it, of course, the obvious vulgar phallic metaphor of the tower that they did it. But at the same time, there is a whole series of signs that they did not do it. First, the same conversation seems to go on. Point two, they are all dressed neatly. There is a sofa behind which is not disturbed in any way and so on and so on. And uh, the nice thing is how this ambiguity uh, is maintained up to the end. In the final confrontation, you know, on the Casablanca airport of the three of them, Humphrey Bogart, uh, Ingrid Bergman, and Victor Laszlo, the virtuous uh, anti-fascist resistant husband, there is a very mysterious conversation between Rick, Humphrey Bogart, and Victor Laszlo. Rick tells him, you said you knew all about Ilza, Ingrid Bergman character, Ilza and me. Victor, heroic husband, yes. Rick, you didn't know she was at my place last night when you were. She came there for the letters of transit. Isn't that true, Ilza? Ilza, yes. Rick, she tried everything to get them and nothing worked. She did her best to convince me that she was still in love with me. That was all over long ago. For your sake, she pretended it wasn't and I let her pretend. Victor, I understand. Well, I don't understand. Because, you know, this can be read as if she did everything like we did it, or it can be read we did not do it. And I think that, again, that this ambiguity is crucial. Here, Molby is very precise. This is how Hollywood worked. It addressed you, to use the standard Lacanian term, as a split spectator. At the same time, it allows you to watch the movie in a totally naive way. You can say, sorry, nothing subversive or morally, ethically prohibited, illegitimate is going on. I'm totally covered. Nothing happened. 
But at the same time, it gives you a whole series of clues for your dirty imagination. And crucial is the coexistence of these two levels. It is as if the ideological big other, the ideology of the film, is addressing you with the following message. Let's make a deal. We will put up a front so that you will be able confronted with the big other of ethical censorship, to pretend that everything is clean, so that then you will be able to have all your dirty imagination. But the crucial thing, and here I disagree with many of my deconstructionist, whatever, American friends, is that I don't see in these two levels, in how you have the official purely moralistic level where nothing happens, people behave properly, and then all this dirty imagination of what could have happened, I don't think that this dirty undersize it is in any way transgressive, ethically liberating, emancipatory or what. I think that Hollywood ideology is precisely two at the same time. That this obscene underground, which can only be hinted at, is what the ruling ideology not only tolerates, but it needs it to reproduce itself. It's the same, again, as with American soldiers in Iraq. All these obscene spectacles there, this is part of ruling ideology, not its obscene, uh, not its obscene transgression. So, again, of course, the split we have here is the one between symbolic law, ego ideal, morality, all the rules are respected, and what Lacan calls superego, the obscene agency of excessive enjoyment. It is, again, at the same time, you can watch it in a naive way and... But at the same time, it gives you clues how to imagine all the dirty things. And here we again encounter the impossible case. Well, I, I'm really sorry, even more for Casablanca, that I didn't bring you this shot. You saw all, it's part of our Western culture, kind of, of course, Hitchcock's Vertigo. If you don't believe me, rent a movie and check up something. You remember the scene after Scotty, James Stewart, saves Madeleine. Kim Novak from Bay beneath the Golden Bridge, he brings her to his home and undresses her, puts her to sleep. Okay, then the first shot there is that we see him, James Stewart, sitting at the table, and then so-called slow panning shot to the bedroom door. On the way to the bedroom door, the camera passes by the kitchen sink, and there on a rope, her, Madeleine's underwear is hanging. The sign that he undressed her. Okay, now there is something very strange going on here, to which uh, you should be very attentive. If you don't believe me, I didn't discover this, even I was duped. I read in a very good new book about vertigo, about this detail. Put the image on freeze at that very precise moment when you see those pieces of cloth there. And you will see that there is not one, uh, not one uh, element of underwear there. They are only abstract pieces of cloth, a, a towel, and so on and so on. But because we, from the narrative logic, we all think that we automatically assume that it is underwear. And uh, then I read in a book on, this book on Hitchcock that this was the compromise with censorship. That uh, censorship insisted that there should be no real underwear there. Because that would give a material proof that Scotty has seen her naked. That would be too much. But you can see that there is something wrong here. Because who is protected by this censorship? None of us has even noticed it. 
We all, I ask all my friends, we all automatically assume that what we see there is underwear. So whom were the censors trying, whom were they trying to protect? Not us. It was precisely that, let's call it the gaze of the big other as the innocent bystander. That gaze should be protected. It's not our real gaze. So you see, when we Lacanians speak about the big other, we are not dreaming. You have it here, this imagined pure gaze. It's that gaze should be the gaze of appearances, as it were, should be, uh, should be, uh, should be protected. Nonetheless, this gaze is radically ambiguous. On the one side, it is radically naive, operating under the conditions of so-called suspension of disbelief. It wants to be deceived caught into the lure. This is, I think, the reason why cinema lovers are obsessed with small mistakes. Like, for example, to take another example from Hitchcock, there is a wonderful mistake in, again, you can check it up, in North by Northwest. Towards the end of the film, when beneath Mount Rushmore in a cafe, Yves-Marie Saint confronts uh, Cary Grant and shoots him. Okay, we later learned it was just a blank uh, shot. But, okay, she's shooting at him. Okay. Put Put, put your video or DVD on a slow motion and watch carefully. Before she even pulls out a gun, if Marie Saint, you can see because this takes place in a busy restaurant, you can see in the background a small boy doing like this. What was it? They were repeating scenes 10, 15 times and the boy was of course tired of hearing the sound, so he knew there will be a shot and he... But why are we so deeply satisfied when we see this? My point is that it, it does not ruin our identification. We, in a way, we want to be deceived. We, we, we love Hitchcock even more. You know, it's not, oh my God, now, now we unmasked Hitchcock. We want to be deceived. It's much more mysterious. <clears throat> so this is one aspect of this gaze. And this is on what I want to focus now. This is for me this malevolent neutrality of this gaze. On the one hand, it is the gaze which is, uh, my God, how time is running. Uh, on the one hand, it is the pure gaze, gaze for which appearances have to be maintained. Like, you know, even if we all know, and this gaze, you can also find it operative in another everyday experience. Were you already in a situation where, for example, you were talking with some people, and you all know what it is about if you were talking about some dirty, traumatic, whatever thing. You all knew what it is about. There were, was nobody else here. But nonetheless, you were embarrassed to say it publicly. Who? who whom did you want to avoid to, to, to embarrass? It's again, it is as if we presuppose an invisible, impossible gaze, which is, again, the proper appearances, the innocent gaze. But my point is that at the same time, this gaze is ignorant, it must be deceived, appearances must be maintained, but at the same time it's a malevolent, suspicious gaze. And this ambiguity is crucial. At the same time, she ignores the gaze for which appearances are to be maintained, but at the same time the gaze which excessively fantasizes, projects into it dirty meanings. Uh, this, again, is what goes on uh, repeatedly in Hitchcock's films uh, and my okay now I will shorten it a little bit my, not only in Hitchcock's film but even in a nicer way this paradox we find it 
in theory, operative even in theory. Uh, for, uh, for example, For example, okay, let me nonetheless go into this. Uh, You know the so-called category, which is now a little bit out of fashion, of post-structuralism, as characterizing French thought after the first big wave of structuralism, uh, Lévi-Strauss, Althusser, Lacan. The idea is that then we get post-structuralism, Derrida, and so on. Okay, there is one mystery. Nobody in France uses this term. Post-structuralism is simply a term you perceive the difference between structuralism and post-structuralism only if you look into France, either from Germany or from United States, as it were. It's basically that you perceive a gap only if you look at it from only if you don't see see it all. But and uh, or another example like this. How do you call it in German? I think Schwarze Serie, Film Noir. It's typical that we use the French term in Uh, because in America they were not even aware of it. It was French theorists after World War II who c- put some films together and characterized them as film noir. It was again only from France that you saw it. In Hollywood they were not even aware that these films belonged together. It's, it can be shown how it was only from the limitations of the French gaze that this appears to you. So we have here in a way two non-existing entities. We have film noir, which emerges as a category only if you look at it from France, if you don't know really what went on in Hollywood, you have deconstruction, where you have an, or post-structuralism, a category which does not exist for France itself, although it's supposed to be French deconstruction. It's something which appears only from the limited external American gauge. Of course, the ultimate irony is there when you put the two together. For example, the classical example of American Academy in the 80s, 90s, uh, post-structuralist, deconstructionist analysis of film noir. Wonderful, a non-existing theory analyzing a non-existing genre. But my point is that nonetheless it works. My point is that this kind of misreading... Uh, can be productive. Okay, I don't have time now to develop this, how wonderfully this works apropos of Jacques Derrida's philosophy, where it's clear that deconstruction or post-structuralism basically means the American misreading of Derrida and German also. But what is so interesting is that at a certain point, Derrida, as it were, identified with this misreading. And this misreading was very productive in a way. It gave to Derrida and deconstruction the much more radical political piece. Uh, uh, what we are dealing here with is so-called, uh, what in cinema theory is called the drama of false appearances. How a uh, You have two, three heroes, for example, in a film, which are in a certain situation, and then their innocent acts, acts, gestures, which are in themselves innocent, are misperceived by an external observer, malevolent observer, as having some perverse meaning. For example, two people just chatting, woman and man, the observer thinks, oh, it's a love affair, and creates a scandal, and so on, and so on. But... What interests me is how this misreading is often more true than what the two people themselves think. Uh, the classical example here is a wonderful Lillian Hellman play, The Children's Hours, which was twice filmed by William Wyler. Uh, it's the story of 
a private school for girls run by, by two women, the austere domineering Martha and the warm affectionate Karen. And then there is the third person, Joe, uh, the fiancé of Karen. But the plot of the play is that we have then Mary, a vicious pre-teen pupil, a small, really evil girl. She is punished by Martha, one of the teachers, and she retaliates by telling her grandmother that one late evening she has seen the two women, Martha and Karen, kissing, embracing and whispering. Of course, the girl pretends I didn't know what went on, but of course, her idea was, let me create this doubt that they are lesbians so that my grandmother will take me out of the school. She succeeds, their lives are ruined. But the point is, of course, the elementary one, that through this false accusation, and that's the tragedy of the film, the two women became aware of their lesbianism of which they were not even aware before this accusation. And at the end, uh, the woman uh, played uh, the older one, Martha, played in the fil second film version by Shirley MacLaine. It was Shirley MacLaine and Audrey Hepburn in the second version. Kills herself. It's suicide. She kills herself. It's too much. She cannot confront it. Uh, so again, the story turns about the evil onlooker, witness, Mary, the evil girl, who, through her lie, unwittingly realizes the, the, uh, this external naive view precisely in its misreading, sees your inner truth, sees more than you see. Uh, and of course, my point is that the same ambiguity pertains also to the political dimension. On the one hand, we have what I already mentioned, the, the spectacle of the Stalinist staging of appearances for the invisible gaze. And I think this is the true enigma of Stalinism. On the one hand, Stalinism is maybe one of the most brutal regimes in the sense of what the French philosopher Alain Badiou called, the, uh, called uh, the, the passion of the real. This brutal disposing, instrumentalizing, using of the people. No, but, but Stalinism is not simply that. The paradox is that at the same time, I don't know of a regime more sensitive to appearances than Stalinism. In Stalinism, if somebody were to tell publicly something bad about Stalin, it would be total catastrophe. And this is, I think, the key to Stalinist, let's call it, symbolic economy. For example, I remember from my own youth, where I was half playing some kind of modest dissident, how uh, in, uh, uh, in a uh, small uh, uh, student journal we published a poem which, if you read it in a very paranoiac way, you could say that it was kind of dissident critique of communists in power, blah, blah. Central Committee met for that poem. They, they accused us and so on and so on. But in a way I find a certain poetic beauty in it, in the sense of how seriously they were taking this stupid poem. They created the scandal, they feared it. Nobody would even have noticed it. You know, this typically Stalinist fear that if they don't react, it's horrible if somebody tells it publicly. It was not that they worried that, uh, that they worried what people privately thought. They, know, they knew that nobody really believes in it, but the innocence of the big other's gaze has to, be, has to be maintained. Which is why also you have this mystery of why, for example, so many Soviet writers, functionaries, after Khrushchev's 56 report, you know that when Khrushchev delivered his famous 56 on the 20th Congress of Soviet Communist Party speech, you know that there were, there were dozens of doctors prepared back and there were six heart attacks 
and some 10 or 20 suicides in the days immediately afterwards. Let's take a very interesting suicide, that of Alexander Fadyev, at that point the president of the Soviet Writers' Associations, the big Stalinist writer. He killed himself. Now you will... Why? It's very enigmatic. You cannot say, oh my God, he saw now. No, he didn't see, learn anything new. He was denouncing uh, to the police all the time his fellow uh, writers. What, so, why did he kill himself? He couldn't stand just the public disclosure, in the sense of that the big others saw it. And again, that's so mysterious about Stalinism. And today, in the only true surviving regime which follows the rules of Stalinist ethical greatness, which is North Korea, this is there developed up to the point of madness. For example, when I visited Korea recently, they took me to the Southern Korea, unfortunately only, they took me to the demilitarized zone and showed me a unique thing. You have on the southern side some point from which you can see a North Korean village. And there you have almost a kind of a theater setting, literally a theater setting. You have even so that it's not when it rains that you can do it, you have a kind of a stage, many chairs covered and a window, and what you see as a theater set is simply North Korea. Now comes the paradox. North Koreans know about it. So what they did with that village is that the life is organized for this southern gaze. The buildings are nicely painted, but only the side turning towards the south. People get special better dresses and so on. Uh, they don't cut electricity there. People are ordered to take walks into the, in the afternoon and evening and so on and so on. So again, you have this madness of, uh, of staging. But I don't think this is all. I don't think that in an authentic revolution, as it were, you don't get this staging. I'm not saying theatricality is false. I think that if anything, you get even a more radical theatricality in authentic revolution. I think that the authentic revolution is precisely a moment when, as uh, 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 here I would like to quote uh, Lunacharsky, the Soviet Minister of Culture, who said, apropos of this great enacting in 1920 of the third anniversary of, anniversary of October Revolution, he said, in order to acquire a sense of self, the masses must manifest themselves. And this is possible only when they become a spectacle unto themselves. This idea of, in a way, people, people, uh, people playing themselves. And I think this accounts for this very mysterious thing, which is, I think, almost the kind of a transubstantiation, mysterious theatrical event of October Revolution, this third anniversary. You know what happened there? In Petrograd, they restaged the October Revolution. All the avant-gardists were still there, all of them. Malevich and so on participated in it. And the whole city played with it. They were starving, but... And it wasn't this Stalinist parade. Like, the real fighters played their revolution that they went immediately to the, they went immediately, uh, uh, to the front. So, I think that this kind of self-staging is something which should, and here I follow my French friend, philosopher Jacques Rancière, which should make us maybe rethink this old Benjaminian condemnation of aesthetics, of aesthetization of politics as proto-fascist. I think there is a certain aesthetization in the sense of theatricality, which is absolutely a crucial ingredient part of a, of a revolutionary process. 
But there is a more radical dimension. So now, believe me or not, yes, three minutes, I will finish. Literally three minutes. What is for me, nonetheless, the theater at its most radical? Usually, people think that music is more radical, especially in the German tradition. You know, Schopenhauer's idea that theater and visual arts only imitate appearances, that it's only in music which renders directly the will itself, the nominal will, this life drive will itself. But I think there is something more horrible than this pure encounter of the life drive itself in music. It's the opposite. What would be the opposite? Uh, usually we say that music renders what you cannot see, what is too strong for representations, for Vorstellungen. What you cannot see, this pure life force, it is rendered in music. But then, isn't it even more horrible to have Vorstellungen, representations, deprived of life, where you, in a way, see death? And this is, for me, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me here, but if somebody asks me, when did you encounter theater at its most radical? My experience is very modest, some years ago I saw it on TV, uh, Balanchine ballet staging of a piece by Anton Webern. And as you probably know, the good thing about Webern, if you want to be snob and listen to modern music, but if you are too lazy to listen to long pieces of it, you know that Webern's longest pieces are seven minutes. No, the standard of Webern is like one, two minutes. Uh, so you have his Gesammelte Werke in, on, three, on three, three CDs, no? Okay, so what did Balanchine do? You have the usual three-minute piece, Dancers dance, then the music stops, the dancing goes on. There was something so shocking about it. Is it, it is as if the movement went on of ballet dancers, but deprived of its life substance, as it were. It is as if all of a sudden they were turned into, into living dead. Their movements lacking vocal support allows us to, to see not the voice, in a way, I claim, they stood for silence. It was possible, literally, to see silence. This is, I think, the counterpoint, the counterpoint to Wagner's moment of modernism. You know, when Tristan is dying, you have the, those key lines, where he says, Ich höre das Licht. I hear the light. This is Wagner, Schopenhauer. But what we get in theater is not, I hear the light, but I see the silence. And this is for me, literally, the sublime moment of theater. And to this, we should stick more than ever. Which is why I always am, that's the limit of my knowledge of theater, distrustful about this, how should you call it, uh, real theater, theater of cruelty or whatever. It can be... It can be, in a way, I think it can be very ambiguous. It can move in this direction. It can also be the worst of American ideology, in the sense of this authenticity. You must have, like, if you don't uh, slaughter chicken on the stage, it's somehow false, it's not real life or whatever. I mean, I think that the fundamental lesson of theater for me is precisely that there is more truth in theater than in reality behind the theater. That it's as in... The logic I'm aiming at is that of, why not end up with a vulgar remark, that of cartoons, Zeichentrick Filme. No? Why are they so fascinating for me? Because, again, think about Tom and Jerry and those elementary ones. What kind of image of social life you get in them? 
an extremely realistic image of an they are fighting each other all the time, plotting, killing, and so on. The image of social relations you get there is much more cruel than you get in an ordinary movie with actors and so on and so on. You know, this logic is what I'm aiming at, that what Lacan calls the real, the traumatic core that we are afraid to sustain, fantasy is closer to the real than reality. In the opposition between fantasy and reality, the real is on the side of fantasy, which is why I think we need theater. You, when you act, you are more real than in reality. So I think that you should be proud if you deal with theater and turn around the usual phrase, you know, like uh, when they say, I don't know, I like these simple reversals, you know, when they say, I don't know, cats or dogs are for those who cannot have stand children. I think on the contrary, children are for those who cannot and so on. But it's the same that I think that reality is for those who cannot stand theater acting. We literally escape into reality. Our reality, I'm not some kind of crazy subjective idealist. When I say reality, I mean social reality. Our real-life interactions are already staged as an escape. Escape from a traumatic excess which precisely you encounter in the theater. I'm very sorry if I was too long, but at least you know why my friends call me Fidel, like Fidel Castro, you know, who I didn't do it seven hours. Thanks very much. So jetzt kommen die, die zehn Minuten für Demokratie, oder? If you will not ask a question, then I will ask myself a question and... Ah, oh, sorry. No, I thought that you are provoking them to ask the question along these lines. Because I think it comes so much from film. Yeah. And um, when you talk of theater, that when you say that um, playing a role in theater is much more, much closer to reality than not playing. Yeah. I don't know. There is a difference between playing on a theater stage and playing a role in daily life, isn't it? I mean, playing on a theater stage is sometimes not very close to reality than playing daily life. No, I, yes, I know what you mean, but, but my point would be that precisely, uh, how to put it, which is why I still, in an old-fashioned way, I like Brecht. What I like with Brecht is this totally non-psychological, non-identification. You know, when, uh, for example, an actor comes to stage and looks in the public and says, I am a policeman, I am paid by the ruling class to beat workers. And, you know, this false, total self transparency. I think that uh, 
how should I put it? Uh, usually Brecht is dismissed here claiming that these are just cliches, these are not realistic portraits, and so on and so on. But I think that, uh, how should I put it? At our most radical, at our most radical, this is my presupposition, that, and which is why I'm well aware of this distinction between real life role playing and theater playing. The difference is precisely that in a theater playing, at least if you are a good actor, you don't really, you play, you don't really emotionally identify and so on. But my point is precisely that this is the only way to be true to your, how should I call it, to be true to, be, to, be true to the core of yourself. I don't think that, uh, how should I put it, uh, the core of ourselves you cannot identify. Okay, let's, maybe there is a question. Ich sage es, ich, ich frage mal lieber auf Deutsch, das ja, ja. Äh, einfach vielleicht ja. für die anderen, wenn die nicht mal in Englisch hören müssen. Ähm, Sie, Sie sagten ja zum Schluss, dass äh, das Theater eben nochmal wieder äh, wirklicher ist als äh, die Realität. Und äh, angefangen haben Sie ja mit diesen Bildern von den Amerikanern, die äh, Folterungen machen. Hm? Und Susan Sonntag hat also... Ja, ich habe das gelesen, ja, ja. Der, äh, der, der, die Überschrift war, die Bilder sind wir. Ja. Äh, sagte sie. Ne? Ja. Ähm, wenn man dies aufeinander bezieht, äh, dann äh, kommen wir natürlich zu einer ganz äh, schrecklichen Geschichte, denn dann ist ja das Theater und die Folterung äh, identisch eigentlich. Es heißt also, diese Folterungen sind ähm, in gewisser Weise die Realität, die realer ist als die ganze moralische Welt, mit der wir leben. Ist das, darf, man das, darf man so weit gehen, sie äh, so zu verstehen? Dann verstehe ich wiederum, dass man sie nicht auf Studenten loslassen will in äh, ihrer oh, yeah. Universität. Ja. Uh, no, no, what I would, I, I see the problem you see, of course, but my reply would be here a very elementary one, that precisely, this is how I would understand Freud's, you know, uh, from uh, that short quote at the beginning of, uh, uh, from, is it, Eneid or what, Virgil, I forgot, from Traumdeutung, Acheronta Movebo, that the true social change has to move the underground of this, fantasies, that this is where it's just, my other parallel would have been, for example, take American South in the 20s. You have officially Christian society. Then you have Ku Klux Klan, which was exactly the same. Publicly, nobody admitted it, but it was the whole set of this obscene, or I don't know how it is in German army. I know how it was in Yugoslav army. It shocked me how you had the official values and then you had the whole set of these obscene rituals, unwritten rules, and so on and so on. And my thesis is simply that what truly keeps together a society are these obscene rules. Now, I'm not saying we are victims. I, I, I'm, I'm just saying that the true ethics is attacking, changing those rules, which is why another aspect of this is that I'm deeply suspicious of not so much Michael Bakhtin, but some Bakhtinians who, in a simplified reading of Bakhtin, with this simple duality, social order is stiff rules, then you have this liberating carnival. Yeah, but I'm sorry, but Kristallnacht was also one big carnival. And even, I read some new analysis now, which claim that Bakhtin developed his carnival theory 
in the 30s with clear reference to Stalinist trials as quite a big social Rabelais carnival. So you know, like, you know, the standard American scene, you know, or even here in Germany or in Europe, you know, when a couple of neo-Nazis go out and beat some immigrant workers, well, if there ever was a, a carnival, this is a carnival. So, you know, I don't think that carnival, that it's, I deeply distrust, here I'm a Brechtian conservative, I deeply distrust this idea, you know, carnival, the world is around, moral rules are, are, are suspended, and so on and so on. No, this is, this can be liberating, but can also be the most horrible thing. And I think the horrible things, the, the most horrible ethical fiasco is precisely when the limits are changed and when things become publicly admitted. For example, for me, the true horror, one of the horrors of today, of this debate of torture in the United States, it's not, does the torture go on or not? Of course, it did all the time. The true horror is that it's publicly acceptable to talk about torture. The true horror for me of today's United States is that you even, I mean, the society, I, you know, it's the same as with racism. If you have to argue against racism, the battle is already lost. I would like to live in a society where racism would be permitted because it would like to make some stupid remark, like, you are an idiot, you, you are laughed at. I mean, in Hegelian terms, at the level of ethical substance, Zitten, it must be simply that it disqualifies you. And what I find so horrible is that this is for me the big ethical change in today's United States, that torture is an acceptable topic of public debate. Ten years ago, are we aware of it? This would have been unthinkable. I mean, this is my old thesis about this so-called silent soft revolution, that what worries me is not Iraq war. What worries me more is that the unwritten rules of what is acceptable and what is not are imperceptibly are changing. Or, for example, I don't know, now we have in Italy and so on, okay, they may be soft neo-fascists, but till ten years ago, if you were a neo-fascist, there was an unspoken pact in all Western Europe that you are out. You are, because of democratic rules, allowed, but it was kind of a, we don't talk with them. Now these rules are also changing. First Italy, then Austria, then we will see what, and so on and so on. So again, my point is that, uh, uh, my point would have been no, but that to operate changes at this level is much more difficult, and that it is at this level of unwritten obscene rules, which are this Iraq, Torches, that at this level the battles are. Wenn ich das richtig verstehe, dann ist das ja so, dass dieses Aufweichen dieser, dieser Tabus äh, yeah. eigentlich eine ähm, Befreiung des, der Realität ist. Yeah, but, yeah, but what do you mean by taboos? My point is precisely that there are taboos and taboos. There are taboos which are part of the system, and the system needs them as taboos. That was the point of my analysis, for example, of Casablanca. It's not official ideology wants you to think nothing happened, but in your dirty imagination you dream that Ingrid Bergman and, and uh, Humphrey Bauer were fornicating. No, official ideology wants you to fantasize in a private way as much as... That, that, that this is, as it were, the libidinal bribery that we are getting. This is how ideology functions. 
And this is my experience. I'm, I'm here speaking about a very personal experience. From I don't know if there are here any dead air Leute. I don't know how it was then, but in our relatively liberal socialism, for example, that was the point. Officially, there was a certain official ideology, uh, socialist democracy, blah, blah, blah. But of course, for this official order to sustain itself, you had to obey a whole series of unwritten. And one of the ways to play a dissident game was to simply follow the official ideology more literally than it followed itself by ignoring the unwritten rules. I remembered once we had a confrontation with a member for Central Com Committee who says uh, socialist democracy, blah, blah, blah. So we said, okay, let's do some social democracy, blah, blah, socialist democracy, and we did some, okay, two radical things. Then we told him, what are you talking about? You are... Now opposing so, and then he was not able to counter us directly. The only thing he he was able to do was, don't you know what's about? Are you you know like he was only able vaguely to refer to to obscene rules? Don't you know what are the rules of the game? What uh, my basic insight is that the ruling ideology is both levels at the same time. That it's not only that, or to put it in a different way, there are transgressions and transgressions. There are transgressions which truly undermine the system, but there are transgressions which are part of the system. And I think this is especially important today. This is part of my big disagreement with some classical feminists who still act as if the ruling ideology today is some big patriarchal authority. No, I claim the ruling ideology today is enjoy life, multitude of, uh, multitude of uh, I don't know, multisexuality, polymorphous, do this, do that, go to the end, reinvent yourself, and so This is my problem with this idea that we should have plastic self-undermining identity. This already is the ruling ideology for me. dieses Phantasma, dass wir alle irgendwie Teil ähm, einer Bühne sein wollen, ja. ähm, als zentral für die amerikanische Kultur oder Identität No, no, I only, no, I, sorry, just, I, I meant that it's what is central for amerikanische Identität are only these uh, initiatic rituals. This specific form of this staging of rituals. Because, sorry, go on. Okay, und, also mich interessiert einfach ähm, der Ursprung des Ganzen, die Gründe dafür. Würden Sie das als ähm, Zeichen der christlichen Kultur, des Westens, des Kapitalismus äh, bezeichnen oder ist das eine anthropologische Konstante, die sich durch die ganze Welt und ganze Zeiten zieht? Ich beschäftige mich selbst zurzeit mit, mit Kriegsberichterstattung vor 100 Jahren, also um 1900 Aha. und kann da feststellen, dass schon damals Kriegsberichterstatter sich ständig selbst in Szene setzen wollten. Ja? Also Sie haben zum Beispiel Fotos gemacht vom Kriegsschauplatz, ja. auf dem Sie ständig selbst zu sehen waren. Ähm, was, glaube ich, 50 Jahre vorher noch ein bisschen anders war. Mhm. Ähm, und ich frage mich die ganze Zeit, woher das kommt. Woher kommt dieses Interesse, ständig selbst Teil des Stücks zu sein? Okay, now I will give you a very naive answer. First, it interests me very much what you are doing because I read a very interesting book also about uh, not so much war reporting but about, uh, about war Tagebücher, what soldiers in First World War, what they remember. And there is an incredible uh, element there of the power of fantasy. Uh, you know this scene that we all remember from, from Ernst Jünger, blah, 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 this, as it were, authentic encounter where you meet the enemy 
face-to-face exchange of looks, and then the standard scene is with bayonet, you hit him, you throw. Uh, the mystery is that although it can be proven, so the book claims, statistically that only maximum 0.5% of the soldiers effectively experience this situation, 40% remember it. This is a nice example of this false memory syndrome and so on. The, 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 the interesting point is what? Because one would have thought that this would have been the most horrible thing. That you would prefer the war to be anonymous. That the most horrible thing would be face-to-face income. No, but there is something absolutely fascinating in it which drives people even to imagine, to imagine even if they did not with uh, it. But to answer your fundamental question, I would say like this in very naive terms. There is a certain self-staging for the impossible gaze structure, which I think quite naively is an, okay, to use this unfortunate, almost politically incorrect term, an anthropological constant. But the modalities of it, why this, why that, how does it work, are, I think, very, very specific. And I think that the reason that these initiatic rituals are so important in the United States I don't have a good answer, but I think that it has something to do precisely with the fact, the fundamental paradox of the United States, which is, on the one hand, the most secular uh, state, secular in the sense that they are fanatical about this, how the state should not be infected by religion, you know, all this stuff, you shouldn't have uh, religious and so on, or this, uh, 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 how to put it, to keep religion private, but nonetheless, at the same time, they are the most religious nation. Everybody knows this, that, for example, the United States are the only Western nation where even now, basically, if you publicly say, I'm an atheist, your political career is over. It's not, it's easier to say, uh, I read now an analysis where a guy claims that although it's still problematic to be gay, but you can make it at least to the level of the governor. It's much less subversive to say, I am gay publicly, then to say publicly, it doesn't matter what you say privately, publicly, then to say I'm, I'm an atheist. But uh, and notice this old how, so again, on the other side, precisely because they don't have a state religion and so on, this is the big difference as statistics. The usual rate in the West is about 30-40% people are religious. And even there, you know, it's a big question, what do they mean by it? For example, a friend of mine recently analyzed closely the church's claim that we Slovenes are a Catholic nation. Okay, the church's claim was that 60-70% of Slovenes, if you ask them abstractly, are you a Catholic, they would say yes. But then my friend simply went further with the inquiry and asked them just additional questions which are nothing but the most elementary explications of Catholic faith. Like he asked them, do you believe that 2,000 years ago a man was walking around Palestina who was the son of God. 5% believe in that. So, you know, it's a question, then what do they really mean by, by, by being Christian and so on? If you, but my point, so, uh, my point is that the, this paradox of the United States, again, no public religion, but this role of religion as a kind of ersatz community, precisely because... America being the melting pot, blah, 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 doesn't have this stronger European nation-state identity, 
and which is why they invest so much more into these initiatic rituals to become member of these smaller communities. I think vaguely that it has something to do with the specific American, American history. So I think, again, I didn't give you an answer. All I'm saying is that the answer to your question is the same as the answer to the specificity of the role of religion in United States. That's as far as I got. <laughs> because this is really some... I spoke with people in England and so on, in my country even. You have, for example, at university, you have rituals, but they are very modest ones. For example, you know, you have to drink four bottles of beer or whatever. I mean, you cannot compare them with, with how seriously this is taken and how much more cruel these rituals are, are in the United States. I have a question about, so starting maybe from these pictures that you... You mean Abu Ghraib, the Iraq yeah, picture, yeah. That you also started by saying, yes, I was shocked and they're horrible, but, and now I'm entering the, the, the theoretical sphere and the analysis of the obscene. Yeah. And if I go on the first step, um, and I think at least in Germany there were a lot of uh, reactions like that that spoke of visceral reactions, of, of really kind of bodily repulsion. Yeah. And then I would like to ask you how how uh, how the the, the 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 concept of repulsion maybe relates to that of opportunity, and what part then repulsion would play in the theater of theory, and then what part it could play in the theater of performance. Part. The last two questions, I'm afraid, they go beyond my. Horizon. No, they are, how to put it, in Kantian terms, I can give you only a regulative, not a constitutive answer to the last two. But I would like to begin with what they because when you mention, oh, for me, my big Lacanian or psychoanalytic dogma is that repulsion al always means it's too close to me, like it's excess enjoyment. It must be an element of enjoyment. It's too intimate, even generally, uh, how do you call it, ekelhaft, uh, uh, disgust. Le let's make a stupid experiment, mental only, which is disgusting, but it tells a lot. Let's say that I would have pulled out that into this template, I'm swallowing my saliva all the time. Nothing disgusting, no problem for you all. Okay, do a very simple, ex or not do it, imagine it, because I, I think you cannot do it. Maybe you are a special pervert. Okay, uh, put a little bit of saliva into your glass, it's your own, and then try to drink it. What's the problem? It's your saliva. A minute ago, it was in your... You know, the moment the inside gets outside, and the more intimate, the more it's disgusting. So I think, again, the disgust, it's simply, it's strictly a defense against excessive enjoyment. It comes too close, and so on. When you spoke about the visceral reaction... But nonetheless, there is something false about it, and this interests me. Namely, I agree with analysts who said, and Susan Zontag, I think, her first point is that how Bush, in his reaction, shifted the change. He said he was disgusted at the pictures, not at reality. It's crucial here. Because as it is clear now, everybody knew it. Amnesty International, Red Cross, everybody was bombarding the states. Everybody knew about it. So, again, it's, you see, it's the same mystery as that of the 20th Congress of Khrushchev report. The big scandal was caused simply, and all the visceral reaction was caused just by us being confronted by it. It's not that we learned anything. The big other learned it, that impossible gaze. We no longer are able to play the game of as if pretending that we don't know it. So 
So again, this visceral reaction, I claim, has nothing to do with true immediate visceral reaction. Like, it's so horrible. No, it has something to do with the fact that it became public, in a way. And here, things are extremely mysterious at the level of intersubjective communication. For example, a very disgusting personal example. Not, this time I can honestly say not of me. I know many couples, unfortunately, where, you know, uh, for example, man is cheating his wife, a woman cheating her husband, and they all play the game with mistresses, oh, if I only were able to leave my wife, I truly love you, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, the moment the guy is, for example, I know examples which literally repeat that age of innocence, Edith Wharton, maybe you saw the film, I did earlier than before reading the novel, experience of how, for example, you know the novel, the guy all the time wants to join, okay, to speak in the, to put it in the cinema terms, uh, Daniel Delewis wants to marry uh, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, no, all the time dreaming about it. And then, finally, when his wife dies, when he is able to, just before meeting his mistress, free to marry her, he learns from his son that his wife knew all the time about his affair. And this ruins everything. There is something about something becoming publicly known, which is a very mysterious phenomenon, because nobody learned anything new, but nonetheless everything changes. And I think that this visceral reaction has something to do with this. It's not immediately that we saw something horrible there and went shocked and so on. It's the awareness that this became, that this got, that this, in a way, that this got public. And, sorry. So then, so then repulsion is not, is basically part of your system of obscenity or how you describe it? No, again, here I would, no, first, at the most elementary level, I claim, repulsion is, is a, a defense mechanism against excess of enjoyment. It's against the, the against the, the, the too much of enjoyment. For example, and it can be located at different levels. For example, maybe I'm a pervert here, a specific pervert, because, you know, when I feel not at the level of immediate physical reality, but when I personally, I'm quite personal here, where I feel the moment of repulsion, when somebody who is not truly a close friend of mine opens himself or herself too much to me, I don't want to know dirty details. Well, this is why it's traumatic for me to teach in the United States. And I don't know, because there, there is something about a psychiatrist in a professor. It happened to me every year that at least two, three students wanted to establish personal relations, not to seduce me or what sex, but basically for me to help them with advice, and they started telling me about their personal sexual traumas. I, don't, I find this disgusting. I don't want to know about this. I don't find anything charming in some, somebody. And I'm even tempted to say, let's be quite frank, even a simple declaration of love, isn't there something disgusting in it? I mean, uh, when somebody tells you, and you can feel this intensity, I love you passionately. Okay, a minute after you can be honored, blah, 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 you return love, but isn't the first gut reaction always a kind of a shock. Isn't it horrible? Isn't it something terribly possessive in the sense of you being possessed to learn that you are such a terrible focus of another person's emotion? There is something disgusting in it, I claim. 
Which is why, I know this is a male chauvinist cliche, but I always deeply sympathize with, sympathize with those, probably it's just a male chauvinist dream, you know, the proverbial prostitutes who do it because they want to have sex, but just for money, that you don't get involved too much. That's, for me, uh, repulsion at its most elementary, because even if you look how repulsion works, this is our everyday racism today. No? We are all today liberals, yeah, yeah, respect for the others, but on condition that the other remains a proper distance, no? which is, I think, why we like charity. No? The logic of charity is I pay you not to help you, but I pay you so that you stay there and, and don't come too close and so on, no? which is why I claim that and now I'm not losing the thread. I'm answering your question. Uh, precisely an aspect of this repulsion is what we call today tolerance, as the multiculturalist tolerance. I'm speaking not about ideal tolerance, but about really existing tolerance. That is to say, in our hypersensitive Western societies. What does tolerance mean? I claim it means more and more its exact opposite, intolerance. Tolerance means uh, is the opposite of harassment. It means let's not harass each other. Harassment, I think, is precisely a code word for the other getting too close to you. That's for me this incredible narcissism of American obsession with sexual harassment. Of course, I'm against harassment when women are effectively harassed. But what I saw in the States is another aspect. It's that it's basically a defense. Like, I don't know. I look you into the eye, it's visual rape. I talk in a vulgar way, it's whatever. It, it's this radical fear of the other in his, her desire or enjoyment getting too close to you. And as I develop in some of my older texts, I think that the same goes even for smoking. I don't smoke. I don't protect companies. I'm a terrorist here. I think they should be, I don't know what, prohibited. But nonetheless, I think it's something very suspicious in our obsession with danger of smoking. Why can't, you know, this intolerance, my God, how can we be, this idea of looking at another person enjoying himself or herself in such a reckless way. No wonder that, that one of the nice cases where the United States applied Stalinist practices is exactly smoking. I refer here to the noble Stalinist art of retouche, you know, when they correct the images. I read this in an article by Christopher Hitchens, and he reproduced the images. You know, in the early 60s, United U.S. Post Office put on the market a photo portrait of Jackson Pollock smoking with a cigarette. Fifteen years later, Retouche, the cigarette disappeared. It's as if it's too much. It's too much this intensity of enjoyment. And I think this is our fear today. Repulsion means, tolerance today means precisely Let's tolerate each other, that is to say, let's not harass each other with too proximity. Tolerance means let's tolerate each other, which means let's not harass each other, which means let's not come too close to each other. Which is why I think it's quite logical that the last point of uh, politically correct madness in the United States, it's so crazy that you couldn't believe it, but it happened. In some radical community, there was a serious debate recently about, uh, I, I know it's an excessive phenomenon, but I claim it's a symptomatic excess. Namely, the topic was uh, the rights of necrophiliacs. The idea was, you know, all of us have specific rights, aren't necrophiliacs uh, deprived of their basic right? 
And then the proposal was that in the same way that some of us sign, you know, in the case that I die, uh, my organs can blah, 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 that what if some of us sign if I, and still young, beautiful, let's say, not me, if I die, that my body can be given to a necrophiliac and so on. I think this is the perfect politically correct sex. The other is that nobody is harassed and so on. This is a politically correct dream scene. Nobody is harassed and so on. And I think here, again, you have Kierkegaard was right when he wrote that. That for Christianity, the neighbor that you should love is a dead neighbor. The good neighbor is the dead neighbor. Read works of love by Kierkegaard. Literally, he has this formula. Oh, okay. Peter. Okay, yeah. Also, when you have a misunderstanding, you can't say that you're not going to be Diesmal ist mir wirklich nicht deutlich geworden, was es denn mit dem, mit dem Titel, also mit der Neutralität, Neutralität des Betrachters auf sich hat. Vor allen Dingen sprechen Sie ja auch von einer bösartigen äh, Benevolenz, hm. haben wir am Anfang auch von der digitalen Position des benevolenten Betrachters. Das sind beides eigentlich in den Epitheter, in den Qualifikationen, verträgt sich das ja irgendwie schlecht mit der Neutralität. Ist es vielleicht dann so, Sie sagten ja am Anfang auch Wahrheit, eigentlich die Struktur einer Fiktion, dass das eine, dass, dass, dass der Titel irgendwie fiktional ist, denn Sie haben ja wunderbar vorgeführt, dass es eigentlich so eine Neutralität überhaupt nicht gibt, die Neutralität des äh, Betrachters. Also weder im, im, im medivolenten noch im malvolenten Sinne. Und äh, wenn man dann von dieser Qualifizierung sprechen sollte, dann müsste sich das dann ja auch... Äh, Auf den Gegenstand. Okay. Okay, no, okay, I will try to answer in a very precise, systematic way if it's not clear. Malevolent neutrality. Neutrality refers to what I tried to describe as this the naive gaze. For example, in the case, let's go to Casablanca. Okay. Neutrality is this I don't want to know anything about dirty thing. Neutrality is that gaze for which we maintain appearances. It is I don't care what goes really on, appearances should be maintained that nothing happened between Ingrid Bergman and, uh, and uh, Humphrey Bogart. Malevolent is then all that projecting of dirty fantasies, imputing fantasies, and so on and so on. But when you said that there is no neutrality, yes it is and it's not, but isn't the whole point that neutrality as such can be either benevolent or malevolent? Let me give you a simple example. Isn't it that when you are dealing with an X, even Adorno has in his Minima Moralia, I think, one of the wonderful short extra passages, whatever paragraphs, about uh, how, uh, how to put it, to be polite in a situation of extreme cruel intensity is the ultimate insult, in a way. Or, for example, that's how I read this Hannah Arendt stuff, that Uh, let's take the proverbial example of, I don't know, uh, SS officer who does it, that's for Hannah Arendt difference between this banal evil and between SI and SS, as you probably know from her Auschwitz book, no? That SA was still this primitive barbarian, lower class, enjoying, beating, uh, uh, excessive enjoyment, uh, harassing, beating the political enemies, while S SS is abstract, bureaucratic, neutral, efficient. But this neutrality is 
evil as neutrality, precisely. And Hannah Arendt is quite right when it says that when you are organizing the killing of the Jews, in a way, it's ethically more horrible to do it in this neutral bureaucratic way than to do it with simple, brutal, anti-Semitic hatred. And the neutrality here was real. For example, I read now, there is a shocking data here. I read now in a book, History of SS, incidentally, a book by a Jewish author, not anti-Semitic. You know where, I think that September, I forgot the exact date, September 38, I think it was, is a historical date. You know where Eichmann was on that time, on the way to Palestina. Because Eichmann established, Eichmann, the one that we all know and love, Adolf, he established a contact with uh, Haganah, the hard Palestinian, so-called, how to put it, secret service of the state before there even was the state, because they both had the same interest, to get rid of Jews from Europe. Uh, Haganah wanted Jews there to outnumber the Arabs, the Nazis, at that point, they didn't yet decide on the total Holocaust. They wanted the Jews out of Europe. And they made a deal, which basically hold for a couple of years. That, so from that point on, oh, the problem was that then, because of total contingent reasons, some railway strike, uh, Eichmann was not able to go directly to Tel Aviv, and he went to, to, to Cairo, where he met with Haganah officers, and they basically made a deal. After that point, if the Jews promised upon leaving Germany that they will go to Palestina and not remain in Europe, it was much easier for them to emigrate. Why am I saying this? Because this means that Eichmann really was not moved by any passion. He took it as a bureaucratic task. The Jewish problem has to be solved. I go to Palestine, not a problem, make a deal, and so on and so on. This is what I meant, in a very naive way even, with malevolent neutrality. Or even another uh, aspect would have been when, uh, no, when, when it's about this objective cynicism of capital. I mean, there is a way to be neutral. For example, when you are confronting a cruel, terrible crime and treat it in a cold way as if this crime is just an ordinary phenomenon that you can observe it with detachment. Isn't this neutrality which is inherently malevolent? Ich bin da nicht einverstanden. Also ich verstehe den Begriff anders, muss ich sagen. Ah, okay. Äh, denn äh, wenn, ich mich, wenn ich mich neutral verhalte, ist das immer schon eine Wahl. Also, yeah, yeah, okay. Aber ich dachte auch in diesem Zusammenhang, gilt es hier vielleicht zu unterscheiden, ob ich mich, weil das Thema hieß ja die Neutralität des Zuschauers, ob, ich jetzt, ob es jetzt darum geht, wie verhalte ich mich als Zuschauer gegenüber einem Artefakt, einem kulturellen Artefakt, ob das Theater, Film, Musik, Film, von all dem haben Sie ja gesprochen, oder wie verhalte ich mich jetzt als Betrachter gegenüber politischen Ereignissen. Das, haben Sie auch, das sind zwei grundsätzlich verschiedene äh, Bereiche, oder Entitäten, wenn Sie so wollen, wie Sie gesagt haben. Denn wenn ich mich gegenüber einem kulturellen Artefakt verhalte, habe ich überhaupt kein Interesse an Neutralität. Im Gegenteil, das geht ja von jetzt, wie jetzt die Obdachkabulatorische ja, ja. oder Aristoteles, wie diese ganzen Ästhetiker, ich will mich ja involvieren lassen als Betrachter gegenüber der Kultur, bin ich überhaupt, habe ich überhaupt kein Interesse an Neutralität. Und wenn ich als Betrachter gegenüber politischen Ereignisse nicht verhalte und sage, ich will da mal neutral bleiben, dann ist das eigentlich auch schon eine Wahl. Ja, dann verhalte ich mich eigentlich schon nicht mehr neutral, sondern äh, 
das, was Sie beschreiben, eigentlich ist, denke ich mal, ist, die, ist eine Form von Gleichgültigkeit. Dann interessieren mich die Dinge aber nicht mehr. I would be tempted in a close analysis to, to complicate things. Because, for example, in art, even when we talk about the opposite of neutrality in the simple sense of emotional identification, I claim that here I agree with you, but maybe even more radically, maybe, you can correct me immediately, than you meant. Let's take an example of melodramas when you cry. If you do. I honestly, till recently, I did cry at some good melodramas. I claim that precisely this is the form of neutrality. That is to say, I think, you only cry through a distance. What do I mean by this? For example, when we say you identify with the film, you identify because you are all the time at some level aware that it's not really happening. What I mean is the following. Let's say you are seeing a terrible melodrama about a murder, blah, blah, blah. But imagine what would have happened if all of a sudden you were to notice that you are watching a, how are they called, snuff movie. Let's say that the guy is, my God, really being killed there. Your identification would be undermined immediately. So it's obviously that precisely when you cry in the movie, blah, blah, you don't identify in the sense with psychological reality there. You identify with a certain fiction. And my radical thesis is that in real life we do the same. My radical thesis is that when you cry, that crying far from being identification. You know, it's like my, with children. To cry. So uh, my point is that uh, emotions themselves, precisely those which may appear to be engaged emotions, can be at a more refined level a way of saying I cry because I, I am already far away enough to be able to display to be able to display an emotion. How should I put it? I'm only saying and so for example when you say that there is no uh, that neutrality itself is a choice. Yes, I deeply agree with it. I just Okay, now, of course, we would have to go to, uh, through all this Kantian uh, problematic of this, uh, uh, what's the precise term from Kritik der Urteilskraft, Interessenlose, inter uh, Bitte? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my point is just a little bit more complex that as it is always with this, I agree with Kant's definition, but I claim that the same holds for real life at a certain level. I claim that this minimum of theatricality For me, this minimum is, as you said, that you can identify against the background of certain neutrality of the spectator. I claim that a minimal structure of this is already at work in so-called real life. That in real life itself, we never simply really identify. Now, again, I agree with now your immediate, probably, counter-question, but nonetheless, it's not the same and so on. Here, I admit my limitation, and I will give you, and with this I will conclude, the precise answer. When you ask me about spectators, I don't know. My, I, uh, what I tr when I spoke about uh, benevolent, sorry, malevolent neutrality, my point was not so much spectator as actors. What interests me is not... Are, spect are real spectators malevolently neutral? But in what way actors, even in real life, when they act, act as if they are acting for a fantasized malevolent neutral observer? 
That, that was my point. So I'm here very modest. I'm too stupid. I don't mean this in an way. I mean this honestly because I'm tired of this role attributed to us philosophers. You know, whenever anything happens, a war, this, a new fashion, it's always good you comment it. Well, there are things that I don't know anything about it. One of these things is spectators and so on in theater, no? What I only wanted to assert, to give you uh, two, two sentences, condensation, resume, synopsis, whatever, abstract of my talk, that there is a certain elementary structure of acting for a fantasized gaze, which I think is not only something which defines theater, but something which allows us to understand everyday life phenomena, which is crucial for understanding the way we act in real life. It was a very modest thesis about a certain theatricality at work in, let's call it, real life. I'm very modest. I'm more modest than it may appear. Would you, would you say, um, in your way of, of reading films and theater, and concerning the concept, yeah. um, Every mainstream product, I know this is a difficult term, every mainstream mm. film produces subversive elements. Yes, and but it does, but they are part of the game. Because mm-hmm. to put it, that, that was at, certain, at some level my main thesis, that these so-called subversive elements are, are, are part of the game. Which is, again, my disagreement with some of the feminists and so on who think that the moment you have some homosexual innuendos or whatever, multiple perverse sexuality, that it's subversive and so on. No, I agree with Lacan. I think that perversion, but I don't think homosexuality is a perversion. I think that perversion is socially a very constructive attitude, part of the game and so on. And uh, 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 again, my my point is that, uh, uh, again, that, a certain, this excess of, I wouldn't say subversive, however you call it, transgressive and so on, is something that the power structure needs in order to reproduce itself. I think even at a very elementary level, what does it mean, I claim, I'll ask you a very simple question. Let us say that you are a member of certain you want to become a member of certain enclosed community. It can be a very modest one. A theater group, academic department, and so on. If you will try just to learn the rules, you will be an idiot. You know that proverbial idiot who follows the rules too literally and sticks out precisely by following. To be really in, you have to know the unwritten rules which allow you to violate the explicit rules. And these unwritten obscene rules are crucial. And these rules are very interesting. For example, my favorite example, to give you precisely this uh, malevolent neutrality example, uh, my favorite example. Okay. Being Stalinism 36-37. Imagine we are now a meeting of the Central Committee, uh, I'm Stalin, and let us say then that one of you stands up and says, Comrade Stalin was wrong, blah, 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 and you attack me. Okay, okay. Then let's imagine that another person stands up and says, how dare you say this? Don't you know that we don't criticize Comrade, Comrade Stalin here, that it's prohibited? Okay, I agree that you... It wouldn't look too good for you, probably. <laughs> you would disappear. But I think you would disappear even earlier. Because I think that uh, it wasn't only that it was prohibited to criticize Stalin. It was even more prohibited to publicly pronounce this prohibition. The worst thing you could have said is, in Soviet Union, it's prohibited to criticize Stalin. The illusion had to be sustained. Although everybody knew that it's the wrong one. That 
Of course, we can criticize Stalin. Just that he's so good that there is nothing <laughs> to criticize and so on. But you know, although this is a ridiculous illusion, it had to be sustained. So here, again, things are more complex and so on and so on. Okay. Um, I'm sure question which ties in with the question of mainstream art, but about radical art, um, because or non-mainstream or subversive, I mean explicitly subversive art, um, which leads me to the more um, maybe at least for me very difficult question of where exactly is this case produced and reproduced? Um, does it happen somewhere in the interface between, let's say, the text, the work of art, the stage? performs whatever and the spectator or is it a function of, of the spectator him or herself um, no okay again this is for me uh, a question which I'm very honest here goes beyond my scope what I tried to my thesis was only that before we are spectators we are actors that there is not kind of a primitive balance where we can say we are simultaneously spectators and actors. It's not also that we are fundamentally voyeurs and then somebody risks and acts. No, we are fundamentally actors for an impossible case. And then in a secondary move ontologically, the primordial situation is we are just acting. There is nobody who observes us, just a non-existing case. And then it's a secondary move that somebody assumes, takes the risk to say, but I as a spectator will be, will be that gaze. But even when we are that gaze, I claim, the situation is always more complex. For example, uh, uh, Jacques Lacan in his seminar on ethics of psychoanalysis gives a wonderful cynical theory of the Greek chorus. He says, what's the function of the chorus? That chorus is the ideal spectator. He says that the role of chorus is the same as that, you know, that evil uh, Okay, evil cynical notion of so-called weepers, weepers, women in so-called primitive countries that you pay so that they cry for you. The paradox is that this works, no? Like, you can do the mourning through another. Now, you will say this is primitive. It's not. We are doing the same in our societies. TV shows, my eternal example, Kent Laughter. You know, friends at all these stupid series where laughter is part of the soundtrack. This is a very mysterious phenomenon, if you think about it. Because the idea is not that the, the TV set, the TV apparatus laughs to remind you when to laugh. I think that it directly laughs at your place. Maybe I'm the idiot, but this is how it works with me. I'm tired as a dog, I watch a TV, TV set laughs, although I don't laugh, at the end I feel released, as if I laughed. So, again, even here, even when we are spectators, I think we are always a kind of ersatz of an ideal non-existing spectator. I claim that the structure is the same. And Lacan's theory is that this is, in a way, the function of the chorus. And my friend Robert Faller, Austrian philosopher, developed this even in a very nice way. How This is how art shows, visual art, not theater, uh, function more and more today. The, the curator is the ideal uh, Spectator. You know, you go, what, how does a modern Biennale exposition look? You cannot even see it all, blah, blah, blah. But you suppose that you are always an imperfect spectator, visitor. But you need, some, you need the fiction that somebody really saw it all. And this is the curator. 
and that it's, it's the same even in, with some fillers. And it would be interesting to read because I'm basically opposed to it, I must say honestly, namely Claude Lanzmann's Shoah. I claim that the whole film is based on this superego terrorizing idea. It's so long to make it sure that almost nobody saw all of it so that it makes you a priori guilty. And uh, maybe you saw it, but I spoke with people who wrote about it and admitted to me that they didn't see all of it, at least not in one installment. The second thing which aroused my suspicion is that I noticed how all the interpretations of Shoah, uh, I mean Lanzmann's film, usually refer to three, four scenes which are very limited, like that famous scene when Polish farmers even today comment on and so on and so on. So I think that paradoxically, Lanzmann Shoah is a film which literally makes you guilty by saying